Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to a new episode of The Haunted Sea. Today is part one of The Legend of Zuya Maru. This is going to be an extended two-part episode where we're going to try to do a real comprehensive overview of the infamous Zuyo Maru sea monster case from the 1970s. Joining me in this discussion are cryptozoologist Andy McGrath. Hello, Andy. Hey, Scott. How are you? Good. And Karak St. Laurent of Crash Course Cryptozoology. Hello, Karak. Hello, pleasure to be on. Yeah, I, I would mention that originally the panel discussion was going to be me, Karak, and Danny B. Stewart. Unfortunately, Danny had some personal things he had to attend to and couldn't participate. But after we get done with this two-part Zuyo Maru discussion, we're planning on doing another comprehensive overview of the 1970s Nisiteris Rhombopteryx evidence from Loch Ness, and hopefully Danny can participate in that. Right. And uh, maybe it's even possible we'll have four people involved and have Andy there, too. I don't know. It's up to Andy. I'd love that. All right. Great. So, usually when the name Zuya Maru comes up, it's usually one of two or two of two opinions. You either hear from one side that it was proven to be a basking shark carcass. And then from the creationist crowd, you get that it was a dead plesiosaur. So hopefully what we can do is really dig into the available evidence some 40 years later and try to clear up some misconceptions about the whole thing Mm. and try to show that the whole truth is somewhere in between those two extremes, but much closer to the basking shark argument. Mm, as it often is. Which I think probably most of us can agree with. It's an accurate conclusion, I would say, yeah, especially based on the actual quantifiable data that we have. That's what is well, certainly suggested. You know, there's actually quite a bit of data to work with. There is. There is. And, uh, you know, there was... A lot of misconceptions due to some quarters not getting the proper information in the right way has led Mm. to a lot of misconceptions. And a lot of interesting things have popped up over the years since the 1978 scientific papers, which are usually considered the final word. Mm. There are a lot of things that have popped up that we didn't know about paleobiology and other things that are relevant to that old case that might cause it, give us question to reopen some of it. And right. we'll, we'll cover all that. You know, the plan is for this first part to be two hours and for the second part to be two hours. So mm. we've got four hours at, at the very least to discuss all this. And we're trying to walk a tightrope. We don't want to get boring with it by getting bogged down in details 
of things that people don't understand, which are deep biological analysis, which mm. I, but at the same time, we don't want to gloss over important things. Yeah, it can be difficult to kind of articulate that in a way that is optimal for everyone to understand who might be just coming into the subject. Well, I yeah. think that giving it the two hours is probably a good idea in that sense, because if that kind of discussion does come up, which I'm, I'm sure it will, we then have pretty optimal time to kind of uh, break those down in more comprehensive terms. Well, we're probably going to have a lot of biologically savvy people listening in. Mm. And those people need to understand that we're having to explain things that are common knowledge to them that the general public is not aware of so that they will understand it. Mm. And right. uh, I want to acknowledge the very good work that my German colleague, Marcus Himmler, has done on this case and on the question of pseudoplesiosaurs. He's done a lot of work on that. I've invited him to come on the show, but he, mm. he says that he doesn't speak good English and uh, uh, would be somewhat embarrassed by that. And I understand that, mm. but I'm sure he's very interested in what we're talking about today. And I just want to acknowledge that we will be drawing on some of his work in this discussion. Mm. So he's done marvelous job on this whole question and you know, a lot of people really seriously don't want you to talk about this subject in, in depth. Mm. And part of it comes from people who have decided, you know, the case is closed. There's no other alternative but it being a mutilated basking shark, mm. like all the other pseudoplesiosaur carcasses that are well documented. That's well, fine. You know, I understand Mm. Why you would have, why somebody would have that view. I don't think it's right, though, to sweep under the rug the contrary opinions of people that were involved in the scientific analysis in 1978 who thought otherwise. Right. And, you know, yeah. the, the whole kind so, of problem with that arising is that science is the pursuit of accurate knowledge. And if you're going to represent a situation accurately, you uh, you have to be willing to be able to bring up any potential holes in in the conclusion well yeah we talked uh, around two weeks ago when we were on andy's podcast talking about the uh i forget what news site it was andy but it was a site that had printed the story about the box hill ape sighting and uh had falsely said that you were the guy who had the sighting when yes. you had just, uh, helped report the sighting essentially well and, I, mean, I wasn't even the reporter of the sighting i was somebody who investigated it many years later right. and um <clears throat> even that turned into a um, an original sighting made by me uh, on Box Hill that they'd even turned me into an athlete, which was fantastic for me. <laughs> I really enjoyed that bit, but um, I think that's where the story really fell apart, not the not the Bigfoot sighting. But yes, <laughs> we were basically looking at the fact in sensational stories about cryptozoology, and generally speaking, when they're reported, they have to be sensational to get traction in the press um, or sensationalized. Very oftentimes, the sensationalized version of the story becomes, over many years, the, the 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 official line, the official story, and that's that's very problematic. Well, that's part of the problem with the Zia Maru case, exactly. <clears throat> and we'll get into all that. Um, oh, lost my train of thought. Let me think here. Okay, 
Andy, what year were you born? 1976. All right, so you were one year old when this happened. Yeah, I remember it vividly. Carrick, <laughs> you were a ghost that didn't even exist yet. <laughs> I was, I was I, maybe an idea at the time, maybe. Yeah. When were you born, Carrick? I was born in 1999. I was, okay. I was 13 years old when this happened. So I have good memories of seeing it in the newspaper and on TV. Mm. You know, it's kind of hard to ignore. Japanese ship brings up dead Loch Ness monster. Plastered <laughs> all over the newspaper would be for like uh, five days at the end of July 1977. Mm. So okay. <clears throat> let me first go back to the original newspaper story that broke this. From 1977. So give me a minute here to find this. Go for it. All right. Well, uh, it seems like the 70s were a very interesting time period for Sea Monster and, and Lake Monster Inquiry. Well, the thing is, <clears throat> the 1970s were a great time to believe in living plesiosaurs because... <clears throat> Belief in the Loch Ness Monster in 1975 and 76 was at its peak mm. due to the flipper photos and the Ryan's evidence and all mm. that. We'll get into that in the next two-part discussion. Right. It's kind of unfortunate that we're doing this backwards because this Zuya Maru thing happened right on the heels of the whole Loch Ness Monster and the Silver Rhombopteryx. Mm. Yeah, it would be rather useful then to kind of get that um, that prior context. But, you know, the, the... Well, people can always listen to it backwards after they're both done, you know? Right. Well, that and the Zuyumaru story is so full of its own details that if you were to forego the Ryan's evidence, it still stands pretty prominently as a very interesting case. So luckily, yeah. we don't necessarily need the context. It's just a bit more useful. Well, one confusing thing to me is that why the Nicodorus Rhombopteryx thing was not mentioned or drawn upon in the scientific discussion about the Zuyomaru carcass. That's interesting that it wasn't. I wonder yeah, why. So, you know, I, I've never been able to, to find <clears throat> during this whole thing, you know, you had mostly. Mostly American and English scientists were debating the whole Nicodorus Rhombopteryx thing, but I've never been able to find the opinions of Japanese scientists about it at that time. So I don't mm. know. I wonder yeah, if that, Scott, is it more a matter of, of translation and the fact that most foreign language sources weren't translated even when they were of high interest in the yeah. mm. Well, I do know that, um, you know, it was in the Japanese newspapers, but I don't know what their opinions were. And it's very difficult to get English translations, as mm. you said, of uh, Japanese newspaper articles. I, I believe it was it also featured on one of the stamps uh, at one period in time. Is that right? Well, there was a Japanese stamp issued around the time that the carcass was found uh -huh. in Japan, but whether it's because of the plesiosaur, I just don't know. Mm -hmm. mm. 
Anyway, so I found the article. I'm going to read this, all right? This is from the London Times, Thursday, July 21st, 1977. A monster from Pacific depths. And it has the famous picture you always see of the Ziyamaru carcass. Mm. Underneath that, the caption is, one of the photographs of the monster tanked on board the trawler. Okay, Tokyo, July 20th. Japanese fishermen caught a dead monster weighing two tons and 30 feet in length off the coast of New Zealand in April, it was reported today. Believed to be a survivor of a prehistoric species, the monster was caught at a depth of 1,000 feet off the South Island coast near Christchurch. Paleontologists from the National Science Museum in Tokyo have concluded that the beast belonged to the Plesiosaurus family, huge small-headed reptiles with a long neck and four fins. Other scientists said the creature might be some sort of dinosaur or Loch Ness-type monster. After a member of the crew had photographed and measured it, the trawler's captain ordered the, sh the corpse to be thrown back into the sea because of the fear of contamination to his fish. Mm. The company which chartered the trawlers has ordered other vessels in the area to try to find the carcass or, if possible, to capture a live specimen. Michihiko Yano, the crew member who took the photographs, said at a press conference in Tokyo that it would be difficult to recover the creature because the creature would be now almost totally decomposed. Hmm. He recalled that when it was hoisted on board the trawler, a cable around its abdomen had cut through the body which oozed a white slimy fluid. The photographs show an animal with white and red skin hanging from its bones. Hmm. Mr. Yano said some of the crew thought it was a whale Others a turtle without a shell. Some joked that it was a monster. I'm not sure what it was, but it does look like drawings I saw of Nessie after my return home last month. Marine biologists such as Professor Fujio Yasuda of Tokyo Fisheries University are also undecided, but they are fairly certain that it was not a whale, turtle, seal, dolphin, or shark. So there you go. That's the original English language newspaper article that broke the story. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It definitely, I wish there was a bit more coverage in the original paper that uh, talked about the fishermen on the trawler and what it was that they were saying about it. Because there, there are some interesting anatomical details that some of them were noting and I'm not sure how uh, young of a trawler crew they were. Maybe they were very experienced, and some of them who pointed out that most it looked strange, that they were strange. Most of the guys that I've seen pictures of were in their 30s and maybe 40s. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm about to review the events that took place on the trawler. I just got to get the document here. Great. Yeah, I think one of the, the interesting like, yeah. things about this Scott and Carrick as well is the measurements, actually, mm. that the, the flippers were 
estimated or measured to be one meter long, all four of them, um, and that the, the vertebrae were, were quite thick in the spine. That seemed to be seemed to be quite, uh, I think, with the head, he said, it's 45 centimeters long, the neck 1.5 meters, four fins one meter each. Well, the body mm. from the head to the base of the tail measured six meters. Okay, that's, I mean, that's not outside of a Baskin chart length. Um, well-developed vertebra, about 45 centimeters long, 15 centimeters thick. That does seem to be slightly strange for a shark. Mm. Well, one thing that I'm going to eventually dis discuss here, which is very interesting, is the fact that a plesiosaur vertebrae, or vertebra, with all the pieces, the, what do you call them, uh, transverse processes and vertebral mm. processes mm. broken off of the central piece, which is called the centra. The centra isolated by itself looks very much like a basking shark vertebra. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though it's made out of different types of material, the, the general shape is very similar. So I will get into that at some point, but here is the forward to the scientific papers from 1978 that goes over the events that took place on the ship. So I'm going to read, this is from the July 1978 scientific papers. Uh -huh. Okay. It says, it was in the beginning of last July that Dr. Fujio Yasuda, professor of ichthyology at our university, came to my office and showed me some photographs. As I started, as I stared at a strange creature shown in the photographs, I felt it would create a great sensation. The photographs showed the carcass of an animal that had been hauled up on a Japanese trawler, the Zuyo Maru, 2,455 tons, Captain Akira Tanaka of Taiyo Fishery Company Limited, from a depth of 1,000 feet, at latitude 43 degrees, 57 degrees south, 170 degrees, 80 degrees east, about 30 miles east of Christchurch, New Zealand, on the morning of April 25, 1977. Mm. Mr. Michihiko Yano, an acting section chief of the company then on board, took photographs and made measurements and a sketch of this animal. On Yano's return to the Tokyo headquarters of the Taiyo Fishery Company, the company requested Dr. Yasuda to identify this unusual animal from the photographs and sketch made by Mr. Yano. Dr. Yasuda pressed forward with the identification work in concert with other scientists in various fields. In the meantime, the Taiyo Fishery Company disclosed the capture story. Presenting the photographs and sketch at a press interview the company held on July 20th. It was before Dr. Yasuda and his collaborators drew any conclusion on the taxonomic position of the animal, but certain circumstances may have obliged the company to release the story. It was not surprising that a few newspapers published very sensational stories in their evening editions of the same day, speculating his identity as a giant shark, plesiosaur, nasty, or other monsters. Mm. 
Since then, all newspapers devoting a large space for the animal and their daily issues. Radio and television were no less enthusiastic in dealing with it. Every variety of speculation, each quoting in various ways, comments of scientists circulated all over the country. Under such circumstances, the Taiyo Fishery Company made an interim report on July 25th using the results of studies of the chemical analysis of the horny fiber of the fin as the main topic. This report was announced by Dr. Yasuda and Dr. Shigeru Kimura, Tokyo University of Fisheries, who assisted in identifying the animal. The conclusion of the interim announcement was that the taxonomic affiliation of the animal could not be determined, though the horny fiber was similar in nature to the fin rays of a group of living animals. However, this similarity was so much emphasized in some newspapers that people appeared unable to distinguish accurate information. It was said that the communication media were hard-pressed with a flood of questions from citizens. What is the true identity of the monster? Question mark. Hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, it's such a... Such a fascinating case in that sense. It seems like almost immediately it was a concern that this would get sensationalized and that the uh, the actual observations wouldn't wouldn't get po- properly published. And of course, that seems like that's what happened. Well, you know, as powerful arguments for it being just another mutilated basking shark are, there are some also some important things that you can't just gloss over. Now. Mm. Fujiya Yasuda, the guy that photographed it and measured it, was a trained marine biologist that worked for the Taiyo Fisheries. Now, in 2006, there was a German documentary produced about the Zio Maru carcass. Mm. It's like 90 minutes long, and part of what they did is they went and found Michihiko Yano and interviewed him. This is almost 30 years later. Right. And Marcus Himmler was kind enough to translate the German language interview into English. Mm. And 30 years later, Michihiko Yano said, I don't believe that was a shark. Right. So this, is, this is the person that examined it closer than anybody else on the face of the planet. Right. 30 years later, he's still not convinced it's a shark. And that's interesting, too, because even if he was, let's say, like a, a new, he would, maybe he was new to trawling or fishing, he's had 30 years to, to really look at a shark and, and determine whether or not what he saw was believably a shark. And, of course, that doesn't say that he's necessarily correct. But that's a lot of time to think about what you saw 30 years. Yeah. And after 30 years, he's at the very least not convinced yet that it was a shark. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, it's really unfortunate. You know, if they had just simply removed the head or the cranium and some vertebrae and maybe one of the flippers and preserved them somehow and brought it back, I don't think we'd be having this discussion. I believe it would have been conclusively identified as either a mutilated basking shark or something unknown. 
I absolutely agree. Yeah, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Right. Because well, they, had, of... they had commercial interests to think about, you know, mm. related to the whole reason that they were there to begin with, which was commercial fishing. Mm. And unfortunately, after the fact, you know, they meant to send boats back to find it, and they never found it. Mm. There's a newspaper article about the aftermath of that. If you'll let me read that real quick. Of course. Fine, yeah. So I can hear I just find it. I was um, there was something I, I was thinking about about this whole thing actually. And one of the things was the the professionalism and the the perceived honesty of the Japanese people. You know, we perceive them perhaps almost stereotypically as a rigid and very honor-based, respectful culture, even now, even in this day and age. Mm. And actually, there's there's something that's very pervasive in uh, Japanese culture, which is the same in, in many um, uh, Far Eastern cultures, which is, is, is lying to save face, but also lying out of respect to save face for one's superior and not questioning mm. one's superior. I'm wondering if there's some aspect, some angle in here where a senior uh, person on board or a senior scientist, uh, perhaps even the biologist, depending on how they were viewed or what their, their status was within the crew, <clears throat> made an assertion that was taken up by the newspapers and later everybody had to roll with it because it would be a dishonor, it would be a disgrace to that person if they didn't and mm -hmm. in ranking or in status they were above them and that's that's something that stayed with me a, a little bit now I, I think they've got something it's called tatame or something like that i can't remember now and i remember a story that my wife's uh father told me about teaching uh this was south korean pilots but there are a lot of similarities between the, the cultures uh teaching south korean pilots maneuvers in a helicopter who's a helicopter pilot and um and teaching them about a very dangerous maneuver that they were doing that they had to change. And they said that they couldn't change it. They couldn't tell their commander because it would dishonor him because of the move, the maneuver was his. And even though it endangered their lives and it was, you know, it had to go, they couldn't let it go simply because to do so would dishonor him and, and make him lose face. That is so interesting. Mm. That is so well, interesting. <clears throat> I'm sure... Japanese culture probably had some influence on what happened. Mm. You know, at least on the public end of it. So, mm. anyway, right. here's the article from the Washington Post, July 22nd, 1977. Fishing firm embarrassed by big one it threw away. Tokyo, July 21st. Zuwald a fragment of skin, a handful of bones, owners of the Japanese trawler that hauled the strange monster from the sea in April were trying to save a bit of face today. The captain of the fishing ship ordered the carcass of the sea creature dumped overboard for fear that it might pollute his catch, but now that pictures of the beast have been made public, the Taiyo Fishery Company, which owns the ship, has learned that a smelly or whatever, worth more than a whole fleet load of fresh tuna. Mm. Officially, officials have ordered other ships owned by the company 
to recover the carcass if they get a chance to, but their hopes were slight because almost three months had passed since the catch was made by the trawler Zuya Maru about 30 miles east of Christchurch, New Zealand. Soviet vessels were reported heading toward the area to join the hunt. Pictures taken hmm. aboard Zuya Maru showed a reptilian creature about 32 feet long with four flippers and a long neck and tail. Michihiko Yano, the Taiyo official who took the pictures, estimated the beast had been dead for about a month. Although the internal organs were missing, some flesh remained. The ship reportedly brought samples of the flesh and bones back to Japan, and scientists were said to be studying these. Some have suggested that the creature may have been a plesiosaurus, a presumably extinct reptile that flourished 100 million years ago in the seas off eastern Australia, among other places. You know, that's kind of one of the the miracles of this case, really, I think, because you, you mentioned that, you know, we wouldn't be having this discussion, or we wouldn't have to have this discussion, I should say, if more of the animal had been saved. But we also, I think, really need to recognize how much of a miracle it is that we can have this discussion without any major impediments because of the fact that there were some samples taken back. I mean, in most cases like this, you don't have samples to work with, I think. Well, um, not at that point in time. Mm. Now, one thing that's very important to understand, in 1977, the type of DNA technology that can be used today to identify an animal from a DNA sample did not exist. Right. The best they had to work with was comparative biochemistry. Right. And even that was somewhat of a primitive state compared to what it is today. Yeah, exactly. So the I... biological way they had to identify this animal was to compare the fibers that were cut from one of the fins or flippers with samples from other animals to see how closely it resembled them. My biggest criticism of the biochemistry analysis is that too limited a set of control data were used. Mm. They fixated on the shark idea and didn't look around to say, well, do reptiles have these kind of fibers? Right. Lo and behold, it turns out that sea turtles have a sack of fibers that goes around the bones of their flippers in their flippers. Mm. Now, I've tried to find out if these flippers were collagen or what they were, if they were cartilage or what exactly they are, but they are a sack made of fibers. Mm. And we know now from exceptionally well-preserved fossils that plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs had fibers around their flipper bones too. Mm-hmm. And we don't have chemical information from those fibers yet, but it's still, you know, interesting. And the yes. argument is, the argument is, is that the fibers pulled from the carcass were of a specialized type of collagen called the elastoidin, which mm. are not yeah. just regular collagen fibers but are collagen fibers that are bonded 
with molecules of the amino acid tyrosine. There are specialized right. type of collagen that are normally only found in the fins of Blue sharks shops. and bony fishes. Mm-hmm. Right. So the argument that the fibers from the carcass were elastoidin fibers gave a lot of strength to the idea that the carcass was a shark, mm. which we'll get into all that eventually. But right. uh, I need to take a short break just to catch my breath here for a minute. So I'm going to pause the recording. Sure. For it. Okay. Thank you. Okay, we're back after taking a short break there. Um, so there is a review of the events that took place on this ship in a paper written in 1997 by Glenn Cuban, who mm-hmm. is a geologist. And I thought I would read that real quick with your permission. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Hang on. This is a paper called Sea Monster or Shark, an analysis of a supposed plesiosaur carcass knitted in 1977 by Glenn Cuban, published in the reports of the National Center for Science Education, May-June 1997, Volume 17, Number 3. Mm. There's an abstract. It says, a decayed carcass accidentally netted by a Japanese trawler near New Zealand in 1977 has often been claimed by creationists and others to be a likely plesiosaur or prehistoric sea monster. Plesiosaurs were a group of long-necked predatory marine reptiles with four paddle-like limbs thought to have gone extinct with the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. However, several lines of evidence include results from samples taken from the carcass before it was discarded strongly point to the specimen being a shark and most likely a basking shark. This should not be surprising since basking sharks are known to decompose into pseudo-plesiosaur forms and their carcasses have been mistaken for sea monsters many times in the past. Unfortunately, the results of scientific studies on the carcass data received less media attention than the early sensational reports allowing widespread misconceptions about this case to continue circulating. Therefore, a thorough review of its history and the pertinent evidence is warranted. Now I'm into the main part of the text. It says, on April 25, 1977, a fishing vessel named the Zuya Maru of the Tayo Fishery Company Limited, was trawling for mackerel about 30 miles east of Christchurch, New Zealand, when a large animal carcass became entangled in its nets at a depth of about 300 meters, almost 1,000 feet. As the massive creature weighing about 4,000 pounds was drawn toward the ship and then hoisted above the deck, Assistant production manager Michihiko Yano announced to the captain, Akira Tanaka, it's a rotten whale. However, as Yano got a better look at the creature, it became less sure. About 17 other crew members also saw the carcass, 
some of whom speculated that it might be a giant turtle with a shell peeled off. However, no one on board could say for sure what it was. Hmm. During, despite the possible scientific significance of the find, the captain and the crew agree, agreed that the foul-smelling corpse should be thrown overboard to avoid spoiling the fish catch. However, as the slimy carcass was being maneuvered over the ship in preparation for disposal, it slipped from its ropes and fell suddenly onto the deck. This allowed the 39-year-old Yano, a graduate of Yamaguchi Oceanological High School, to hmm. examine the creature more closely. Although still unable to identify the animal, Yano felt was definitely unusual, prompting him to take a set of measurements, along with five photographs using a camera bar borrowed from a shipmate. The total length of the carcass measured 10 meters, about 33 feet. Yano also removed 42 pieces of horny fiber from an anterior fin in hopes of aiding future identification efforts. The creature was then released over the side and sank back into its watery grave. Mm. All of this took place within an hour. About two months later, Yano made a sketch of the carcass, which unfortunately conflicts with some of his own measurements, photographs, and statements. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, I'll get mm. into that, too. When Yano returned to Japan on a different boat on June 10, 1977, he promptly had his photos developed in the fishery's dark room. Company executives were fascinated with the photos, some of which did appear to show an unusual animal with a long neck and small head. Local scientists were asked to look over the photos and remarked that they had never seen anything like it. Some speculated that it might be some kind of prehistoric creature, such as a plesiosaur. On July 20th, 1977, as excitement and speculation about the find began to spread. Officials from the fish company held a press conference to publicly announce their mysterious discovery. Although scientific analysis of the tissue sample and other data had not yet been completed, company representatives played up the sea monster angle. The same day, several Japanese newspapers published sensational front-page accounts of the find, soon followed by many other radio and television stories throughout Japan. Although some Japanese scientists remained cautious, others encouraged the plesiosaur idea. Professor Yoshinori Imazumi, director of animal research at Tokyo National Science, quoted Sai Shimbun as saying, it's not a fish whale, or any other mammal, it's a reptile, and the sketch looks very like a plesiosaur. This is a precious and important discovery for human beings. It seems to show these animals are not extinct after all. Mm -hmm. Tokyo Shikama of the Yokohama National University also supported the monster theme, stating it has to be a plesiosaurus. These creatures must still roam the seas off New Zealand feeding on fish. Wire service reports, 725-77. Our American and European scientists interviewed about the carcass mystery. 
generally downplayed the sea monster theory as reported by a number of newspapers and wire services. Hmm. Paleontologist Bob Schaefer at the American Museum of New York stated that every 10 years or so, a carcass is claimed to be a dinosaur, but always turns out to be a basking shark or an adolescent whale. L. Wine Wheeler of the British Museum of Natural History agreed that the body was probably a shark, explaining that sharks tend to decompose in an unusual manner. Wheeler added, greater experts than the Japanese fishermen have been foiled by the similarity of shark remains to a plesiosaur. Other Western scientists offered their own interpretations. Zoologist Alan Fraser Brunner, aquarium director of the Edinburgh Zoo in Scotland, suggested the body was a dead sea lion, despite the creature's immense size. Carl Hubbs of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, felt it was probably a small whale, so rotten that most of the had slowed off. George Zug, curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Smithsonian Institute, proposed that the creature was a decayed leatherback turtle. The hmm. divergence among early scientific opinions in this case might be partly due to the fact that many biologists and zoologists are used to working with complete fresh specimens rather than badly decomposed carcasses, or worse, photos of such, in which both external and internal organs can be quite different from their appearance in living animals. On July 25, 1977, Taiyo Fishery Company issued a preliminary report on biochemical tests using ion exchange chromatography on the tissue samples. The report stated that the horny fiber sample from the carcass was similar in nature to the fin rays of a group of living animals. The living animals referred to were sharks. However, the report failed to state this plainly, leading to further confusion by the Japanese media and the continued spread of monster mania. Toy manufacturers began gearing up to make wind-up models of the beast, while the company which made Yano's borrowed camera developed a whole advertising campaign around his sea monster photos. Dozens of fishing vessels from Japan, Russia, and Korea were reportedly stemming toward New Zealand in hopes of re-snagging the hastily discarded creature. Bubbling with excitement, one Japanese citizen confided that he thought Sea monsters were imaginary creatures, but danced when I read in the newspaper that it was still alive. The Japanese government even issued a new postage stamp, featuring a picture of a plesiosaur. Hmm. There we go. Yeah, so the carcass controversy continued to make appearances in the popular press in America, but with less sensationalism. On July 26, 1977, the New York Times reported that Professor Fujio Yasuda, who initially the, promoted the carcass resembled a plesiosaur, acknowledged that initial chromatography tests showed a profile of amino acids closely resembling a control sample from a blue shark. On August 1, 1977, Newsweek briefly discussed the South Pacific monster without taking sides. A few months later, a more detailed article by John Coster appeared in Ocean's Magazine. This account, evidently the basis for many subsequent reports, many of which embellished or oversimplified various aspects of the story. Coster mentioned the preliminary tissue results and comments by Western scientists supporting the shark interpretation, but also quoted Yano 
and others suggesting that the issue was not yet settled. Coster himself suggested that the small size of the creature's head, well-defined spinal column, and lack of dorsal fin did not fit the shark identification. Hmm. So. <clears throat> well, I certainly. Think... Oh, sorry, go on. Any comments? You go, Carrick. I was going to note, I remember looking over one of the articles that, or I should say one, one of the papers that you sent me, Scott, on the uh, Zuyumaru examinations, and there was this great little list that it made of, of roughly 10 to 15 points uh, for the shark theory versus uh, inconsistent with sharks. And the dorsal fin one is interesting because I do wonder if the lack of dorsal fin should be called potentially attributable to it not being a shark or especially considering that the back is one of the most exposed skeletal areas of the carcass if that simply means the dorsal fin decomposed off of the body well you see most people believe that you can see a dorsal fin mm. in the pictures i think a dorsal fin is mentioned actually by yano yeah. as well well you yeah. see what even makes that even more confusing I'm sure both of you are aware of the famous Valhalla sea serpent seen off Brazil mm -hmm, in 1905, right? right? Mm. It looked very much like a plesiosaur, if the descriptions are accurate and the sketches are right. Right. Other than the fact that it had a squarish dorsal fin. Mm. So that yeah. even confuses things even more because it had a turtle head, a long eight-foot neck, and a, a squarish dorsal fin in about the place you would expect to see one on a shark. And That's so, fascinating. Is so, that the only description of a, a sea serpent with a dorsal fin? I think there have been... No, other. actually, there's more. You can find some in um, Bernard Hubelman's mm. sea serpent book. Hmm. In one of the yeah. papers that I wrote myself about the Zia Maru carcass... I quote the other sightings. So let me see if I can find them real quick. Mm. I'm taking and, a look at one of the uh, the front images of the specimen right now. And yeah, you're right. There does appear to be, at the very least, a, a dorsal fin-like flap of the flesh up yeah. here where a dorsal fin would typically be. It even has that kind of front curvature to it that a lot of yeah. dorsal fins obviously have. That was one of the things wow. that convinced me it was I would shot, remind you as well that Ichthyosaurs had shark-like dorsal fins, and they were not mm. sharks. They were marine reptiles. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, this is definitely something different to that. There was, there was a, while you're looking for that information, Scott, there was something else I was, I was wondering about with the mention of the Glenn Kuban and, um, and, and the worry around this time of creationists latching onto uh, information like this to disprove evolution that big battle that was a, a lot more um you know vibrant at that point in time whether mm -hmm. a lot of the discreditation by regular scientists who would be you know materialists by nature was was to do with that essentially and i think obviously you mentioned this scott i know kuban has mentioned this too and i've thought this for a long time that actually a living dinosaur would not disprove evolution in any sense at all the only thing oh. that would really disprove evolution is a topsy-turvy fossil you know humans right, right down yeah, the, the dinosaur. So you, 
you go somewhere and you find unambiguous evidence of a trilobite in the mouth mm. of a woolly mammoth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that you would know, uh, mess up the timelines altogether. Yeah. You know? Oh, you know, the but, the 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 um, the, 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 uh, the the skeletal remains, fossilized remains of a human inside a T Rex. You know, something like that. Exactly. There we are. Yeah. But you, you know, a living pleasantal. Uh, wouldn't do that in the same way as the coelacanth didn't do it. It's just well, a, yeah, a survivor. Well, yeah, just going to say you got the coelacanth. But I'm not sure if that was the, the situation back then. I think in that time period, it was very possible that that fight was perceived to be to be uh, a, a winning move, a checkmate, so to speak. And I wonder if some of the disparaging remarks you see from some of the, the Western scientists, oh, it's just a sea lion, it's just this, it's just that. We see that a lot with Loch Ness sometimes, where yeah. actually the alternative to what people are, are, um, are describing is even more far-fetched, a giant turtle, something we've never experienced before, you know, a seal of, of 35 feet in length, um, oh. decaying. Things that don't really make sense. The shark theory makes sense, but there are still you know, a few aspects. You that see, part of the problem was is that the general media dropped the ball, not bringing it into the context mm. of the other pseudoplesiosaur carcasses, which were well documented, that had been found before in mm. other places, starting with the Stronsabees. Hmm. Mm. Which we'll get into all that, you know. I'm yeah, just right, right now. I'm trying to set up the basic what happened on board the boat. You know, yeah. that's yeah, because they only well, had it on the boat for less than an hour. And there's then there's so the other all aspect. the evidence, all the direct evidence related to the carcass was gathered and took place in that hour. Exactly. All the relevant things specific yeah. to that case. Right, and, and then yeah. of course the, the the just to some degree the mishandling of the, of the analysis that ended up occurring. Yeah, well, the nineteen seventy eight papers are for the most part really well done, mm. and you know the people that are insistent that it was a basking shark <clears throat> love to quote from those papers. Except for the parts of the papers that contradict the basking shark idea, right? Which so, again is highlighted yeah. so greatly in that. I mean, uh, it's there, it's there in the final 1978 papers. There were still doubters, and that's right. the part of the story that, to me, is so important that needs to be brought back out into the light and say, "Well, wait a minute here. Everybody was not convinced it was a basking shark." Right. That is the and, truth. And, Most people were, but not everybody. And the people right, that those people could were even... saying that it wasn't a bad start were trained paleontologists and marine biologists. Right. So you can't just ignore what they were saying or just go, I don't like what they're saying. They're just wrong. Okay, why are they wrong? That's what needs to be discussed here. Right, and you know it's important if they're wrong too, because the the yeah. gripes often do really highlight. Well, you know well, there are some kind know, of. At the very least, you know, if you're convinced it's a basking shark, this will at least illuminate why the matter was so confusing to even professional biologists. 
At the yeah, very maybe that'll help. It's worthwhile to discuss for that aspect, you know. So right, maybe that will help oh, expand yeah. our understanding of why uh, basking sharks get mistaken for this thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, a bit more often than other specimens do. Maybe it goes a bit further than what we know about them currently. And if that expands, that means that, you know, if it is totally, definitely a basking shark, that's fine. Maybe that will help us prevent this same potential misidentification further in the future if it becomes a bit more common knowledge. That's why molecular science is so important to this whole question. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of what it looks like, you can take a tissue sample and subject that to biochemical analysis or DNA analysis and get a solid answer, most likely. Something I, I don't know, actually, Scott, do the, do, the material, do the samples still exist? Well, that's an interesting question. There is possibly one piece left in a museum in Japan. Uh, and I'll give you that information right now if you just let me dig it up. Hang sure. on. Sure. At least it was there 20 years ago, so. Mm. And I was really surprised to find this. Yeah, that would be great to have some uh, some more modern DNA testing done on that. Yeah, well, if this if this piece of, of, of one of the fibers is left at this museum in Japan, that can be done. Mm. Okay, this is from a blog from 1996. <clears throat> it's a blog called PaleoNet. And the date was March 5th, 1996. Read Japanese plesiosaur from Katsumi Abe. Mm. Here's what he said. He said, the Japanese plesiosaur was collected 30 miles off Christchurch in the morning of April 25th 1977, it was reported after three months later when the fishing boat returned to Japan. The crew discarded it because of the terrible smell of decaying. We have only a few photos of the nearly whole body. It looks like a plesiosaur indeed, and a single bristle. I don't know the proper term of the fin. Later, a scientist reported biochemical similarity to a certain shark based on the composition Ratio of amino acids in the bristle. Katsumi Abe, Shizuoka University, Life and Earth Sciences, Shizuoka, Japan. Hmm. Now, obviously, the first thing I thought to do was reach out to this guy. Now, right? He was killed yep. in a car accident. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately. But this is what I found later on. It's just, the co-author, Dr. Katsumi Abe, was killed in a tragic road accident while driving hmm. home from a seminar on 23rd August 1998. Beyond the high level of his scientific attainment, including mystery and the video recording of unrestricted tiny animals, his colleagues remember a sincere open personality and a loving devotion to his family. So here's what I've done to follow up that potential lead. I've sent two emails to Shizuoka University, one that I translated into Japanese and another one in English. Never heard back from them. Then I contacted um, Sidney Pierce. Do you know who Sidney Pierce is? No. I've heard the name. Okay, Sidney Pierce is the one that figured out that the giant octopus from St. Augustine was whale blubber. 
Oh, interesting. And he's down the road. He's up in Tampa. Mm. So I contacted him, and he was not interested in pursuing it. He said he was retired anyway. So hmm. then I turned around to a creationist biochemist that has been arguing that the Zeomaru carcass is a shark. So he's pushing back against the idea that it's a plesiosaur. Right. He is a creationist. His name is Pierre Jolstrom, and he's written several artic articles arguing that the Zeomaru carcass was a mutilated basking shark. And he seemed interested in trying to pursue this, but didn't have the money to pay for the biochemical analysis. So, I have not been able to confirm that that fiber is still at Shizuoka University. However, it is possible to retrieve a DNA signature from one of these elastoidin fibers because I found a paper on it. Great. So if there is one fiber left and it's not too contaminated or deteriorated, we might be able to get an answer out of that one fiber. Mm. I mean, and that so, would be amazing. So that would be. question of finding it. I, I think as cryptozoologists or whatever it is that we're, we're called these days, this is always the big problem. You know, it is essentially a genre without money in it. And those mm. involved in it are, are self-made and, and rarely um, rich amateurs. <laughs> and I right. think, well, um, these, you know, these things always can you come... See, can you see how desperate I am? We've got the possibility that one fiber was left in a university 25 years ago. It would be amazing. So the, exactly. last, the last information that we had that it was there is from 25 years ago, and the guy that said it was there is dead. Right. So you, I'm, yeah, I'm like, yeah. you know, somebody shoot me, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, you'd test it, and it would be spoiled, and but at least you would well, have had a chance. And I think that's... That. In yeah. the original... 1978 biochemical analysis because of the chemical preservative yeah. that it was put on aboard the ship. It was put in a preservative called sodium hypochlorite, yeah. which is apparently some kind of bleach. Okay. And they had to do the test twice to double check it by taking basking shark fibers and treating them with the same chemical and then redoing the test. Oh, really? And they got yeah. the same results. This is in the 1978 Basking Shark biochemical analysis. So there's uh -huh. even questions there. I mean, yeah, there's actually a. Uh, maybe not a much, but there is a little bit of, of mm. wiggle room there, you know? Yeah, there's a, a diagram here in one of the papers, um, a graph, I should say, for uh, four different chemical traces. And this was, I believe, uh, the. Um, this is after the treatment by sodium hypochloride, and we see that the uh, the comparison between the fibers taken from the carcass and the elastoidins of a basking shark sample are uh, they're vastly different in the third, second, and fourth chemicals, hmm. and it's been suggested that that's because of the sodium hypochloride. But as far as I know, there was not a sufficient um, control test for that afterwards. 
flaw. You know, the only the only thing, the only fibers that the Zumaru flipper fiber fibers were compared with, to my knowledge, were the elastoidin fibers from Blue Shark, the first test, and then fibers from a basket shark. Yeah, I believe so what this... I'm saying is that there was a very limited set of controls that are used to test those fibers. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, too, because, I mean, you know, with, with such a kind of uh, decomposed carcass, it's it's not exactly up in the air for everything, what it could be. But it's there's well, a few specimens you know, that you could kind of look to, and only looking to two of them isn't exactly... The best well, way to go about them, let alone to not follow people, up afterwards. The people that are arguing that it was a basking shark are not only pointing to the biochemical analysis, they're also pointing to the great resemblance of the carcass to other known basking shark carcasses that look like plesiosaurs have been found in the past. Mm. Yes. It's right. hard to get around that argument. You put the two together and it's you know, it's like almost a slam dunk. And yeah, that's I'm, true. It's within the but size as well. Even besides mm. all that, there were still people willing to come forward very bravely and say, "Hey, wait a minute! You know, there are, there are questions I have about this and that." And maybe, maybe now is the time to look at those counter arguments real quick. Sure, mm. sure. And let's not forget the, the testimony of people on board the vessel. As well, yeah. Scott. I mean, these are the people that saw the creature. I think it's it's not without uh, merit that they would have been very used, especially in a, a culture like Japan, where there's there's a heavy focus on on food from the ocean. They would have been mm. very used to trawling up sharks, fishing for sharks, as as well yeah. as other catch, and seeing them in all different states of decomposition. And I think you know, a thirty eight year old with a thirty nine year old ship's biologist, it's going to be hard push yeah. to pull this guy. He's going to Listen know what he's looking this. at. This is a quote from a paleontologist who worked on fossil plesiosaurs, right? Mm. This is from the collected papers in the carcass of an unidentified animal trawled off New Zealand by the Zuya Maru, published by La Society Franco-Japanese de Oceanography, Tokyo, Japan, in July 1978. This mm. is a paper called Comparison of the Unidentified Animal with Fossil Animals by Akio Obata and Yoshio Tomoda. Now, Akio Obata was a vertebrate paleontologist that, like I said, worked with plesiosaurs and published some plesiosaurs. Yoshio right. Tomoda was an invertebrate paleontologist, but he was mm. the co-author. And this right here the concluding remarks is as close as anybody came in the scientific papers to saying it was a reptile. Now, here's mm -hmm. I'm going to quote directly from the paper. Concluding remarks. There is still no decisive evidence to determine whether the animal in question was a shark or an undescribed reptile. General opinion favors identification as a shark. A possible method to approach a more accurate identification might be to focus on the basking shark, Cedarhinus maximus, which occurs in the cold waters of the northern hemisphere. 
Yet, a biologist who was inclined to the shark concept told us that he had an impression when he recently had an opportunity to see a large specimen of the basking shark that he, the animal in question would not be a basking shark. In this note, we dared to present an uncommon view posing several questions to the now prevailing general opinion. After all, whether the animal belongs to a group of sharks or whether it is a marine reptile, we do not know any genera or species which agree with it. Mm. Now, I'm sorry. That's from the final 1978 papers, and that sounds like, to me, a million miles away from it being proven to be a basking shark, in these guys' opinion. Yeah, it seems like kind of bringing together all of the um, the consistencies and inconsistencies these samples and the anatomy yeah. and the reports had with basking yeah. sharks. It really well, is probably the most accurate conclusion that we have, which is kind of the lack of a conclusion. We well, don't now, know for sure what it is. Let's break down what they said there. They said, there is still no decisive evidence to determine whether the animal in question was a shark or an undescribed reptile. Now, an undescribed reptile simply means an unknown giant reptile that right. lives in the sea. That's not saying a plesiosaur. It's not saying a mosasaur. It's not saying a giant sea turtle. It's saying an undescribed reptile, which is an undescribed marine reptile that we don't know about, or at least the possibility of that. You know, that choice of wording is so interesting, too, because... So much of the argument for the reptile, of course, is, well, it looks like a plesiosaur. And what's so interesting th about the fact that they didn't particularly name a plesiosaur, s that would seem to indicate that perhaps there are some uh, generally reptilian features that don't necessarily say directly plesiosaur or directly this or directly that, but maybe do suggest, generally speaking, a reptile. And that would be very interesting because, of course, well, that the, the biggest... That opens the door for convergent evolution of something else that's evolved mm. to look like a plesiosaur. Right. Well, we, we see that in some aquatic mammals as well. Yeah. Um, it's mentioned a bit during the uh, the documentary that we, we put out recently that things like leopard seals, even though they're mammalian, anatomically speaking, and in their predation, they're, they're quite similar to, to older aquatic reptiles. Yeah. Well, now, see, the full paper that I just quoted from there's a detailed analysis comparing the body proportions of the animal as recorded by Michihiko Yano mm. compared with the body proportions of known fossil plesiosaurs and even known fossil mosasaurs. Right. And they couldn't find a match with any of them. And they said based on study of known fossil plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, we couldn't find any species of mosasaur or plesiosaur that matched the animal in question. In size, particularly, that's Matt, right? Well, the size was about right. I mean, there were mosasaurs and plesiosaurs that got 40 feet long. Right. So the size wasn't the question. The, 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 the thing that didn't match was and this is one thing I should have explained, and, and Cuban, the part of his paper that I quoted from, mentions this, is there's the famous sketch of the body that you mm. see reproduced a lot that Yano did three months after he got back. And the thing is, based on his measurements, 
the body proportions are actually a much more elongated trunk than what you see in his sketch. Right, right. There's an adjusted version of that. Let me dig it up real quick. Let me see here. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm. So you, you go for a minute while I find this picture. Sure. Well, you know, talking about, uh, you know, size comparisons and, and anatomical comparisons to, uh, to, to any known species, whether it be extent or extinct, there's one particularly interesting account from, uh, well, I should say allegedly, because there's not exactly a perfectly cited source that I've seen just yet, I'm sure, although I'm sure one must exist somewhere, from some of the crew of the trawler that say uh, some of them noted that the, the back fins were roughly uh, very similar in size to the front fins. Yeah, which is, that's... of course, not a feature you'd see in a shark. Um, that's a that's a tetrapod feature. Mm-hmm. That is mentioned. I, I thought that was yeah. Okay, it was very do you see? Entry. Do mm. you see the picture I just sent? Yeah, and there it is. There is actually the comparison there with the fins being almost identical in size. Yeah, well, whether well, they're see, uh, it's the, the wrong top... dimensions or not, they're the same dimensions. The top picture is the sketch, the original sketch that Yano did three mm. months after the fact. Right. The bottom image is the same sketch adjusted for the measurements that he took on the ship. And as you can see, if you go with the measurements he took, it's got a much more elongated trunk. Mm. Yeah, well, there's that idea of, of the... Um the convergent evolution, so to speak, because you have a very plesiosaur-looking yeah. animal with very unplesiosaur-like proportions, but at the same time, you have even adjusted for the correct dimensions. The fact remains, one of the most significant facts about all this is that one of the things that seems to really just set it apart from a shark are those flippers. I mean, those are yeah. not the flippers of a shark, and maybe the dead uh, flesh has decomposed in a way where maybe flesh is overlapping and makes it look bigger. That could have been the case, but unfortunately we don't really seem to have a, uh, a, a clearer version of that. The elongation of the body and the position of the back flippers figures really strongly into the other assertions that it was not a basking shark, which I will explain eventually. Mm. But looking at the adjusted image on the bottom there, uh, getting back to the paper by Obata and Tomoda, they compared the readjusted body proportions with those of known fossil plesiosaurs and known fossil mosasaurs. Mm. So what they what their conclusion was is that the body was too elongated to be any kind of known fossil plesiosaur. There's no type of plesiosaur that we know from the fossil record that has a body that elongated in the middle. Right. All right. Now, going to mosasaurs, there are mosasaur bodies that elongated, but they don't have the long neck like a plesiosaur. Mm. So based on those two arguments, they said, well, we can't match it with any known type of fossil plesiosaur or mosasaur, so we think we can rule out it being a known type of plesiosaur or mosasaur. Mm. However, now quantifying or, or quantifying that, we have to say that they're working with fossils of animals that lived 
65, 66 million years ago. Right. That's not taking into account what could have happened in an additional 65 or 66 million years to mm. either a Mosasaur or a Plesiosaur. It's right. Going against the trends that we know about Plesiosaur evolution, but it's not impossible. Right. Well, we all mentioned the coelacanth earlier, yeah. and the interesting thing about the modern coelacanth is that mm -hmm. they're actually quite larger than their prehistoric right. ancestors were, and they were in a relatively contained uh, spot in the world for evolution. So if you had something maybe that had more range, like an open sea plesiosaur or plesiosaur-like animal, maybe you'd actually have room not just for size adjustment, for but for anatomical adjustment too. Yeah. But now, it's important remembering... To, oh, go ahead, Andy. I was just saying it's important to... When we're talking about these, the known fossil record, is that it's, it's not a complete record. It's fragmentary. Yes. It's essentially, it's a, it's a giant assumption based upon what we found. Mm. And I think, as you say, things may have developed and changed since then. Sure, but we, things have, made, have stayed the same. We just haven't found them. We haven't found the, uh, the uh, antecedents in the fossil record. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. you often hear the argument that, well, if plesiosaurs or mosasaurs had survived beyond the KT event, we'd find the remains. Well, they do find the remains, but they're fragmentary, and because they're so probable, let's say they're reworked. Oh, yeah, we got reworked out of its original fossil deposits, but it's actually yeah. <laughs> from the Mesozoic. So there's a lot of goalposts moving there, too. So. There's so much goalposts moving, and I think in every <laughs> genre in which we, we inhabit, we just have to remember yeah. that careers are based upon it and paradigms careers are based upon paradigms and you have to yeah um, and there's been so many examples of paradigm shifting when eventually people look and say actually no we don't believe that anymore like crystal palace um crystal palace park is very close to where i live and in there you have those 18th century uh sorry 19th century dinosaurs that were were drawn up and were created these huge models and iguanodons and Places mm. and all kinds of things, and anatomically, most of them are pretty off base. Yeah, but that's exactly. the best that they knew around about that time. That those were well, the back then. They thought ichthyosaurs didn't have dorsal fins or tail flukes and were mm. amphibious. Yeah, mm. yeah, amphibious. That's so right. That and they're depicted didn't come to light till the 1890s. That's right. That's so right. You know, we've learned a lot about plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and mosasaurs. In the forty years since that carcass was discovered, was discovered, so a lot of that stuff has relevance to reanalyzing re the Zuyo Maru case because now they know that a lot of these Mesozoic marine reptiles were a lot fishier than we assumed. Mm. Like now, yeah. they know that mosasaurs had tail flukes like an ichthyosaur. Right, and there's yeah. so, no. You know, we're still doing things. Right. Um, and, you know, along with well, the anatomical features of these, um, not just this specimen, but also reptiles that we already know of, yeah. that would suggest anatomical similarities. We have features of the carcass that might even suggest that, l let's hypothetically assume that this was some kind of new species. It, it might actually be indicated that it's, it's hard to find them in the fossil record. There's a, a passage here in one of the papers about a uh, a substance that was 
uh, what would you say, suspected to be blubber-like on the subject. Mm. It reads, the waxy substance that covers the carcass, both in the photos and eyewitness descriptions, is called adipocere. Adipocere is formed from the saponification of fatty acids. The presence of this much adipocere would seem to indicate that in life, this animal possessed a layer of blubber, which is clearly inconsistent with a shark identification. And that's interesting because at the same time, if you have an animal, you know, like a shark or like, you know, a blubber-like animal that has um, blubber or cartilage mostly making up all of it, I mean, there's a reason we don't find megalodon skeletons. We find teeth because it's pretty much the only bone a shark body is their teeth. A few years ago, in the Great Pound, it was found in Theosaur with fossilized adipocere. Mm. Exactly the same thing you're talking about. Right, right. And there you have it. There's an example of fossilized on Right. Well, maybe you have something there that um, I suppose that does kind of call into question the whole, oh, well, maybe it's not that well preserved in the fossil record. But that's interesting because a disappear is still not consistent with many sharks, although there are some anatomical features of the the carcass that might be mistranslated as to not be aligned with a shark. For for instance, some of the fishermen on board said, uh, along with the kind of uh, the less documented eyewitness descriptions that we've been going over, that there was red muscle seemingly present what's interesting is that not a lot of sharks have uh red muscle a few of them do and one of them happens to be basking sharks well also most people don't know this either basking sharks have a layer of white fat yes right which might explain the so do whale sharks Mm. yeah so getting back to the elongation of the body and the position of the back flippers or fins, that was another major piece of the of arg- argument that it could be a fish or a basking shark. Mm. Now let me go to that paper. It's a different paper. It's by Fujio Yasuda. Go for it. He's an ichthyologist. You've seen mm. the famous clip from the Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World where they interview him? I think so. A while back, yeah. All right. Well, he yeah. So this this is his argument based on different evidence that it was uh, not a fish or a basking shark. Let mm. me just bring this up real quick. Let me see here. Uh, all right. This is from the collected papers. It's a paper called Comparison of the Unidentified Animal with fishes by Fujio Yasuda and Yasuhiko Taki. It says, on the assumption that there was a pair of large posterior limbs or fins, the animal had an extraordinarily long trunk. In no known fish species, attaining a large size is the trunk so elongate. If the animal were a fish and had ordinary body proportions, a fin situated in such a posture of the part of the body could not be but the lower lobe of the caudal fin. Mm. Further, if it was a fish, there should be a pair of pelvic fins in the case of figure 1B and one or more dorsal or anal fins, figure 1C and 1D. Mm. The enormous size of the body and the structure of the vertebrae and of the anterior limbs or fins, among others, clearly indicate the animal is not a bony fish. Mm. When the affiliation of the animal is looked for in fishes, it must be done in sharks. 
Assuming that the unidentified was a shark, the body plans as in figure 1A and B are impossible. Some sharks, such as the frilled shark, Chlamydosalachus sanguinus, have a small head and backward position large pelvic fins as in the unidentified animal, mm. and no dorsal fin in the anterior and middle parts of the body. However, their body size is far smaller than that of the unidentified animal, and their pelvic fins are in a more advanced position. The basking shark, Cedronus maximus, and the whale shark, Rhicodon typus, are known to attain lengths of more than 10 meters. However, the former species has a larger head than in the animal under study, a large anterior dorsal fin in the middle of the trunk midway between the petrol and pelvic fins, a posterior dorsal fin, an anal fin and pelvic fins in more advanced position than in the unidentified animal. Mm. The latter species has the same number of fins and a large first dorsal fin situated in the posterior half of the body. In order to be concluded that the unidentified animal is a basking shark or a whale shark, we must then assume that, one, while the petrol fins and lower lobe of the caudal fin had remained attached to the body, the two dorsal fins, pelvic fins, anal fin, and upper lobe of the caudal fin had all been lost or otherwise overlooked by the observers. Two, interior parts of the skull had been lost. And three, Michihiko Yano counted by mistake a single lobe of a fin as two. We consider it difficult to arrive at a conclusion based on so many assumptions. Incorporating all these observations, we are not able to find any known living fish species which agree with the unidentified animal trawled off New Zealand. If it mm. is a species of shark, it may represent a species unknown to science. Now, there's an interesting idea. Yeah. So, and that yeah. might make the, uh, you know, the um, amino acid testing a bit more actually accurate. Maybe we're not looking at a mistake, but maybe we're looking at something that is uh, characteristic of some kind of shark or offshoot of basking shark that we're not yet aware of, something that has very similar uh, chemical well, traces, but are just different enough to make it distinct. When you're trying to argue that it could be an unknown animal, it's much easier to argue that it could be an unknown shark than an unknown reptile. Mm. The skeptics seem to find that a lot more palatable. Mm. You know? You know, it's, think... it's just... Oh, sorry, go on. No, oh, sorry. Well. I'm just listening in, and it's, it's so interesting, and I'm looking at all of the evidence, and really back and forth the entire thing is it's it's kind of like a it's a character witness situation mm. uh, the evidence is inconclusive there's not enough really remaining um and lots of reputable sources including the the original uh, ship's marine biologist and uh, others who've been involved in the case have very different opinions on the evidence so it's it's a character witness situation what do we think of the characters who made the claim, and those who since examined it, and and how would we, uh, do we accept, you know, their their positions, their conclusions, or, or do we not? And it it doesn't really seem to be anything on either side that would switch it um, over to to one conclusion or the other. And that, that's mm. always been my opinion on it. Yes, it's probably really. Let's let's look at it. Our plesiosaurs still existing. In the world, well, there's anecdotal evidence of that, but the fact that one was trolled up 
it's probably most likely a shark or a, a fish of some well, kind. Well, you know, the whole case for the idea of there being living plesiosaurs still around today doesn't rest completely on the Zuyo Maru carcass. No, mm. no, I know that. Zuyo Maru that, carcass but... could be a basking shark, and you still got all this other evidence. Absolutely. But I think in, in terms of probability, it's most likely one. If, if we're to even look at these things, uh, plesiosaurs of living being very rare animals, probably most likely. However, they were like the, the, the testimony of the, the people on board the ship and some of the conclusions of the scientists who later examined the, the, the diagrams of pictures, there are you know, some very strong elements to the case. Yeah. Well, it you know, seems to me like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a case of character. Do we the believe only the characters thing ever going to conclusively settle the matter is if that fiber is still at Shizu University. Yeah. And I think we should get it. We should get it along with your um, character, with your footage for Baudet as well. Let's, I think we just do a big fundraiser. We'll get them all in. We'll get the Baudet footage. We'll get the, the fiber. And that would be amazing if there are any super rich that is <laughs> um, somebody uh, fanatic with that boots on the ground a Japanese cryptozoologist to go there and find out if that fiber is still there. It would be amazing because it's it's you know yeah. it's still and there must be Japanese listeners to the show that it's it's evident. It's like the um it's it's like the um uh the the um the, it's almost exactly the same as what happened on Orkney. Only there, there are different elements to that story. Mm. Different elements to that story because, you know, essentially, in Orkney there there was there was some there were some remains. I think there still are in, in one of the museums. But the well, creature yeah, was the strongest beast. Yeah. The but the creature was fifty five feet in length, was part of the tail missing. So it's above. Yeah. You know, it's beyond the, 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 the dimensions, even with the tail missing of the, the largest known basket shark. So yeah. what, what could that be? At least that's, to me, the most outstanding part. of Well, that there was a marine biologist that wanted to do tests nowadays. And because the uh, samples that are left of the Stronsa beast are in such poor shape, the museum would not let her get samples yes, to retest. Yes. And her idea was that there was the possibility that the Stronsa beast could be an unknown type of shark that only resembled a basking shark, which mm. is get back to the idea we were just discussing relative to Zuyo Maru. Again, uh, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's more likely. There was also uh, other weird aspects about the, the Stronsa beast that, it was described as having a, a fibrous spine that almost shimmered or glowed in the dark when it was right. brushed. Well, that was probably muscle fibers breaking down. Mm. That would make and that's one thing overlooked a bit when talking about, I think, the similarities between these samples and sharks is there's not just a lot of things that we don't know about what would potentially be an unknown reptile or unknown large fish of some kind, but there's some things that are kind of missed in the uh, the analysis of, of whether or not it could be a shark. Like mentioned before, there's the whole, oh, well, there was red muscle argument, and, and most people might say like, oh, well, you know, sharks 
and have red muscle. Well, it turns out the most relevant sharks in the case actually do have some red muscle and also have white tissue, like you mentioned, fatty, fatty tissue. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think more than anything, the confusion around the Zuyu Maru case is really, uh, what would you say? Exemplatory or, yeah, I think that's the word for just a mishandled case because there's mm. uh, a lot of confirmation bias going into a lot of the uh, more amateur examination. There's a lot of ignoring done of, of points on both sides through that. And obviously that doesn't help paint a very accurate image of what we actually know about this carcass. And on top of all of that, the, the fact that we just really don't uh, look into this sort of thing very often now. I mean, most people who know about the Zuyumaru case have no idea about the chemical study that really, I mean, it doesn't uh, match up very well. And there's plenty of reasons that are completely reasonable in the ways of sharks well, for why that might well, be the case. But it's still significant. A lot, Scott, a lot of the misconceptions a lot of the misconceptions that have snowballed over the last 40 years have left have led to a lot of these polarized opinions. And mm. obviously, both sides that are screaming plesiosaur and basking shark can't definitely be right. Mm. You mm. know? Well, that's the whole point. You know, there's no way to know what's correct. And you might say, oh, well, that's the conclusion. And really, more so, that's, that's the call to action to try and actually uh, test more for a conclusion. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's... You know, the sort of molecular technology we're working with today is advanced way beyond what it was 40 years ago. So right. now we can do things like Loch Ness environmental DNA studies and DNA studies on reputed relic hominoid hairs and all kinds of stuff that we couldn't do 40, 50 years ago. You know, mm -hmm. so if this happens again, and it has happened again, at least with pseudoplesiosaurs, they have done DNA tests on some of these more recent pseudoplesiosaur carcasses mm. and confirmed mm. that they were basking shark carcasses. And right. that, that, that's yeah. interesting so, that lots of the modern examples you know, of, of what we see as, as um, carcasses and washups are quickly eliminated so, from this category due to uh, the, the guys, availability mind, of very effective testing. Do you mind mm. right for today and pick this up in a couple of days? Sure. Sure, absolutely. I, I, it's almost we're about to me. 90 minutes. I figured maybe we'll do another hour. Yeah. Two and a half hours will be the first part. That sounds That's fantastic. Great. Yeah. That's great. And then I've we enjoyed come it. back for part two and do another two and a half hours, and that's five hours. I mean, if we ain't beat it to death at that point, then we got problems. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely agreed. All right. I think, by the way, Scott, before you go, I think it was Dr. Yvonne Simpson. She was the. Um, Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. she was the, the scientist. That, I think she yep. tried to get in 2012, but it was And she was working was with down. Jeff Swinney. Oh, was she? Yeah, and he's a British theologist, I think, at the University mm -hmm. of Edinburgh. And uh -huh. he's done a lot of work on the pseudoplesiosaurs as well. <clears throat> All right, yeah. I'm going to stop recording now, okay? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. All right, we're back to our Zuyo Maru discussion. We've taken a break for about three days, but it's only a few seconds if you're listening to the show. So 
one important thing that needs to be addressed is that the initial press reports didn't seem to be aware of or didn't highlight the fact that there have been a bunch of other cases like the Zia Maru case, at least superficially, where sea monster carcasses resembling plesiosaurs or sea serpents had watched up in various parts of the world and had eventually been found to be mutilated basking shark carcasses. So you look at a plesiosaur and you look at a basking shark and you're asking, you're scratching your head, how, how, how is that possible? Well, I'm about to explain this. Okay, if you look at the basking shark, it's a giant filter feeding shark that swims through the water with its mouth open. Its gills have hair-like fibers that capture plankton and then when it closes its mouth, the water washes the collected plankton down into its stomach. It's a filter feeder like baleen whales. Mm. If you look at the baleen in the mouths of whales, it works the same way. It looks like, like hair, and it captures these little planktonic organisms, shrimps, and other types of marine plankton. And when they close their mouth, the water washes it into their stomach. And as, if you'll notice, a lot of these filter-feeding animals get very large, at least the oceanic ones. So the two largest known species of sharks that we know about are the whale shark and the basking shark. So they're very different animals, though. They're different orders of sharks. And they're built differently. <clears throat> the whale shark is built like a tank. It's a very compact, got a small, well, not a small, but a, a compact-looking frog-like head. Got a very thick hide. It's not built to easily fall apart, even if it dies. I found a picture of one that was dead that was sitting on the bottom, and it still was pretty much well intact. And... The, the basking shark is the other extreme. You look at the skeleton of a basking shark, and it's built so flimsy of all these different parts, it's basically built to fall apart. And what I'm getting at here is that you look at the intact uh, head of a basking shark, and what you see is this small turtle-like cranium where the eye sockets would be. And then the upper jaw and the lower jaw is a totally separate piece connected to that. This giant jaw for where, with a wide open mouth, it's meant to swim through the water and take in all this water and get that plankton. And then behind, behind the, the giant jaws are the gills and the gill structure. And this is going back to where the front fins or pectoral flippers, pectoral fins are. And there's a girdle that holds that connected to the spinal column. Hmm. So when a basking shark dies, what happens is the jaws and all those gills fall away from 
the spinal column, and the petrol girdle. And what you're left with is this tiny cranium. Well, it's not really tiny, but compared to the rest of the head, it's, it's very tiny. That looks like a turtle's skull, missing a lower jaw. But it's still got uh, eye sockets in it. And there are actually on top and on the bottom of this cranium are holes that look like eye sockets as well. And then you've got the vertebrae, like six or seven vertebrae, going back to where the pectoral girdle joins the spinal column. So what you're left with is this animal with a large body, what looks like a long neck and a small turtle-like head with a pair of front flippers. And if the back pelvic fins have not rotted off, it's got a set of back flippers too. Mm. So if you see this, you look at the intact head of a basking shark and you pull the jaws and the gill apparatus away, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. So this happens naturally as a dead basking shark carcass is floating around. And occasionally, one of these carcasses washes ashore. And because it looks sort of like a plesiosaur, people that don't know about the post-mortem situation with a basking shark are looking at this thing going, what is this? It looks like a dinosaur. Mm. So this has happened multiple, multiple times. And it's safe to speculate that probably hundreds of years ago, these carcasses would wash ashore on a beach in some primitive society, like, say, the Vikings or Native American Indians or somebody like that would find it on the beach and they have absolutely no frame of reference, so it was a sea monster to them. In other words, what I'm trying to say is we don't know if mutilated basking sharks might be partially responsible for some of the legends of primitive societies concerning sea sea monsters and sea serpents. Mm. If you get what I'm talking about here. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that kind of folklore still exists today whenever an unidentified carcass washes up, there's tons of of media that immediately goes to sea monster, and of course that creates some believers. Well, the thing is, at the time that the Zero Maru case happened, any smart newspaper editor or writer could have very easily went looking through their archives and found other cases like the Zero Maru case Mm. where these carcasses turned out to be basking sharks so it's a shame that they didn't put that in the original context because it's very relevant and the fact that this had happened so many times before is one of the reasons that the people that were investigating the Zuya Maru case zeroed in on the basking shark as a possible answer because there was precedent. Right. And the first one to figure this out was 
was a Scottish um, anatomist named Everhard Home in 1809. If you'll hang on a minute, I'll just go dig up the story about it and read it real quick. Sure. Yeah. So this will take me a minute to bring it up here. Mm. Sort of a overview. Mm. One of the unusual things about this Strontid beast that you don't hear too many people talk about was that when it was initially discovered, there were some internal organs left. One of these was the stomach. And one of the features about the stomach is it had an oddball spiral valve and in the intestinal part of it. And the spiral intestinal valve is a noted anatomical feature of sharks and also sturgeons. So the fact that a spiral intestinal valve was reported for the stomach of the Stronza beast is an important piece of evidence to suggest that it was a shark. Mm. Yeah. All right. Hang on a second here. Uh, I'm warm out here. Let's see. Now, do we have any uh, descriptions of what the um, the organs of the Ziomaru carcass looked like, or were none of them left? There were none left with the Ziomaru carcass. None left. Okay. No, it was all the internal organs were gone. Right. I know most of the major ones were. I didn't realize all of them were. That is a oh, shame. Yes. Um, so, you know, the whole belly was gone. All you had was the flanks of the body, the uh, petrol girdle, mm. petrol fins, pelvic fins, but we don't know if there was a pelvic girdle there or not. There's no description of it. There may have been. Most likely there probably was, but there's no description of it. Mm. The, the cranium and the spinal column and the tail. Right. So, okay, so this is talking about the starts of beast. This is a review. I'll just read it real quick. It says, although stories of sea serpents and mythical sea dwellers abound in Orkneys, there have actually been a surprising number of documented historical creature sightings that have now entered the lore of the islands. Perhaps the most famous of these encounters took place in Stronsay. Before I go any further, I should explain where this place is. If you go north of Loch Ness, the very northern end of Scotland, there's a set of islands called the Orkney Islands, and Stronsay mm. is one of the islands in the Orkney Island chain. So we're talking the extreme north of Scotland. Right. All right, so there in 1808, the first and perhaps best known of a series of episodes relating to the carcasses of what appeared to be long-necked sea creatures to watch the shore. The Sharks of Beast was first sighted on September 25, 1808, lying on rocks at Rothy's home head in the southeast of the islands. There, John Peace, a local man fishing off the coast, was puzzled by the sight of seabirds flocking around what looked like an animal's corpse on the rocks. 
turning his little boat and watched by another Strontsay man, George Shearer, Peace made his way to the carcass. But what he found was unlike anything he had encountered before. Lying on the rocks were the remains of a large serpent-like creature with a long, ill-like neck and three pairs of legs. Hmm. At the time, the corpse was inaccessible, so closer examination was impossible. However, ten days later, one of Orkney's notorious gales blew the decomposing remains ashore, where they were found just below the watermark, or the high watermark. Sherrard hmm. now had his chance to examine the corpse, which he did meticulously, studying it and measuring the dimensions of the sea monster. The beast was described as serpentine, measuring exactly 55 feet long, with a neck measuring 10 feet 3 inches long. The head was like that of a sheep with eyes bigger than a seal's. Its skin was gray and rough to the touch. However, it stroked from the head down the back. It was said to be smooth as velvet. Mm. Six limbs extended from the body and a bristly mane of long, wiry hair grew from the beast's shoulders down to its tail. These silver-colored bristles were said to glow eerily in the dark. The flesh was described as being like coarse, ill-colored beef entirely covered with fat and tallow and without the least resemblance or affinity to fish. Hmm. The skin, which was gray-colored and had an elastic texture, was said to be about two inches thick in parts. By the end of September, news of Strontz's monster had spread far and wide. Because the remains had rotted away to practically nothing, the four men who had originally examined the carcass were taken to Kirkwall. There they had to swear to the magistrate that their information was the truth. Before long, details of the incredible find reached the ears of the Natural History Society in Edinburgh. At the Society's meeting in November 1808, the creature was given the Latin name Halcidrus Pontopidani, the name meaning Pontopidani's Pontopidan's water snake of the sea was in honor of the 18th century Norwegian bishop who collected reports of sea monsters. Shortly afterward, shortly afterward, the naturalist Sir Everard Holm read of the Stronsay beast. Intrigued by the intrigued by the tales of a sea monster, he viewed what was left of the evidence. He was convinced, however, that the creature was nothing more than the remains of a decomposing basking shark, an animal fairly common in the waters around Orkney. Comparing the vertebrae of the monster with those known to belong to a basking shark, Holm found them to be identical. But how could the long-necked creature washed up on a strong beast be the remains of a basking shark? The answer lies in the physiology of the basking shark, and in particular, how it decays after death. First, the shark's jaws, which are attached only by a small piece of flesh, drop off, leaving what looks like the remains of a long neck and small skull. Then, as only the upper half of the animal's tail fin carries the spine, the lower half rots away, 
and provides a convincing serpentine tail. Then the dorsal fin begins to decompose. The remaining rays can have the appearance of a hair-like mane. The monster's six legs can be explained away as the remains of the shark's lower fins. But the mystery doesn't end there. Even if the Stronza beach was nothing more than a dead basking shark, an element of mystery still surrounds the saga. The longest recorded basking shark measured a mere 40 feet, 15 feet smaller than the remains of the Stronza beast. At 55 feet from tip to tail, the shark that decomposed to form the Stronza beast must have been a monster in its own right. So was the Stronza beast really a shark, or is there another explanation? An unknown species of giant sharks, perhaps. With all such tales as these, sometimes it's better not to know. Okay, well, that article there is somewhat mistaken because, as I explained to you guys earlier, Everhart Home maintained that the carcass was mismeasured and that it was actually 36 feet long. See, I have a problem with that. My, well, my problem with that, essentially, is Everhart Home was, was based in London. He never saw the shark. The shark was viewed by the two farmers and the carpenter. You think they would have they would have some idea of of the size and at least how to measure something. If I would be right, he based his estimates on the length on the size of the cranium and the size of the pelvic or the petrol which were were preserved back then. They've since been lost. But mm-hmm. it, based upon that size, estimating the, the entire size of the creature, based upon what the creature should have been, a basking shark or something else. So if it was a different kind of animal or a different kind of shark that hadn't been encountered before, well, how can you really correctly uh, anticipate that size? I think... That you know, was part of the reason that Yvonne Simpson and Jeff Swinney yes, wanted exactly. to go back a few years ago, what was this, 2005? Somewhere uh, in there. Later, I think. Yeah. 2013 or 12, somewhere 2012. in there. 2012, I think it was 2012. Okay, they wanted to go back and re-examine the remains uh, molecularly to determine and confirm that it was a basking shark because they had the idea that it might be a different kind of shark, possible. Yeah. And the reason they weren't able to do that is that the remains of the Stronza beast are apparently in such fragile condition the museum in Edinburgh wouldn't let them take samples because of the condition of the remains that they still have at the museum, mm. which are not on display but which are locked away in storage. So. And I think the, the skull and paw, they were destroyed in, I, I think, uh, in the Second World War and a German bombing raid went there. So I, I think That's the awesome. remains that that now exist, there are other remains. I don't know what, I what the description that is. All that's exactly. left now are three vertebrae. Yeah. Preserved in a, yeah. a jar full yeah. of alcohol or some kind of chemical preservative. That's right. Is that in the National Library of Scotland? Possibly. I, I, I think was so. thinking is it was at the University of Edinburgh, but I don't know. Uh-huh. Are they in the same building, possibly? I don't know. I think maybe the National Library of Scotland is in the University of Edinburgh, which I'm going to find for you. Uh, something I should know. Well, let me dig up 
the papers, the original paper by home and see what he says in it. Okay? Uh-huh. Hang on a minute. So you and Carrack fill up the dead air while I'm looking for that. We will. Sounds we will. Good. It's it's interesting because I mean it's just so uh in a in a way the greatest part about cases like this is if nothing else, the knowledge that basking sharks can look almost exactly like what we would expect a, mm. a modern plesiosaur to look like is so interesting. Um especially with the case of like length. Length is interesting because mm. you can have a sized up basking shark, but I wonder what the proportions would look like. We we discussed last time a bit of like the, the <laughs> sins and the maru carcass look mm-hmm. like. And to have a, a a sized up basking shark is one thing, but what about one that's fins are in the wrong place? And I, uh-huh. I would like to know what the original sketch maybe said about proportions rather than just size. Well, I think- relative to the Zia Maru case, there is some question about whether some of the crew members and maybe Yano himself may have mistaken anal and uh, second dorsal fans for pelvic appendages. Uh-huh. We'll get I was actually eventually. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a one I want to touch on for sure when we get to it. Yeah, um, absolutely. One thing you have to understand too is that sometimes the Mutilated basking shark can be so decomposed that the flanks fall off the body, and what you're left with is nothing but the cranium mm. and the spinal mm. column, and it looks like a giant snake. Mm. Right. That yeah, happened that. in Town, Massachusetts, in 1939. I have a picture of that one. Mm. So it didn't look like a plesiosaur. It looked like a, a giant snake. And there were some serious arguments later in like the 1840s and 50s and maybe 1860s that some people thought the Stronson Beast was an oarfish. Hmm. But that doesn't add up either. No. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an oarfish really only fits the only the one profile of it being long, but plenty of types of fish are long and plenty well, the of them fit as an oarfish. An oarfish is laterally flattened. Hmm. Right. Look at the images of the um, Stronza beast and tell it's got a rounded body. Well, that and oarfish have such pronounced spines as well. You would, you yeah. would think that, that would be something that is uh, such a striking feature, one at least reasons, in small remnants, but there's none on the, the Stronza beast. One of the reasons they thought that um, it might be an oarfish is because of the supposed mane going down the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that That's seems shim- to have been muscle fibers breaking down. Right, right. Now, there was a description of the Stronzi bees that you've mentioned, Scott, that said that certain, I think like the tips of the appendages or some of the fibers seem to glow in low light conditions. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a particularly high amount of phosphorus found in that area of, uh, of the world. Could be, or it could just be the properties of the muscle fibers breaking down. They might be shiny and reflect that light. Could, I just don't know. We are finding more and more uh, species of, of animals that have, under certain conditions, the ability to give off UV light. And uh, maybe this is an early example of that kind of thing. But given it was so early on, I kind of doubt that it was particularly UV. 
But who knows? Maybe in the right conditions, it does give it off without the need for a specific kind of bulb. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the stranger ones, because that's a hard one to reconcile. I wonder if there's any known sharks that give off that kind of light. I don't know. I would I think... Well, I think that the either the six-gill shark or the seven-gill shark has green eyes that are bioluminescent. Really? Yeah. Huh. So here I have, I have the um, paper by Everhard Holmes. Mm. Let's see what it says here. He's comparing the, um, the Stronsa beast with another basking shark. That was 36 feet long. And maybe where he's going with this is that he's saying that the size of the cranium and the petrol girdle from the Stronsa beast was roughly the same size as the 36-foot basking shark he was comparing it to. Let me see. Hmm. This is a, okay, the name of the paper is an anatomical account of the Squalus Maximus of Linnaeus which in the structure of its stomach forms an intermediate link to the gradation of animals between whales and cartilaginous fishes. Hmm. By Everhard Home, read May 11, 1809. The fish from which the following account is taken was entangled in the herring nets belonging to the fishermen of Hastings off that coast and about halfway across the channel on the night of 13th of November, 1808. It was brought ashore at Hastings the following day, blah, 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 blah. The fish is a male, 36 feet long, 36 feet, 6 inches long from the anterior part of the head to the longest extreme of the tail and about 9 feet from the extreme point of the dorsal fin to the middle line of the body. Now, let me skip ahead and find the Stronsa beast here. Let's see. All right. I cannot close the present paper without mentioning that nearly about the same period, two other squalae of large dimensions were thrown upon our coast. Hmm. The probable cause of this event is the season being uncommonly boisterous and tempestuous. So he's saying there was a lot of storms. Mm. Right. It's very storm. All right. On the 3rd of January, 1809, a fish was thrown ashore at Penryn in Cornwall. On hearing of it from a person on the spot, I sat down a drawing of the subject of this paper to compare it with, and the fish proves to be one of the same species, and a male measuring 31 feet in length. The other was thrown ashore on the 7th of October, 1808, at Rothy's home in the state of Gilbert Mason, Esquire, and Stronsay, one of the Orkney Isles. It had been lying on some sunken rocks 11 days before, was in a half-putrid state, and the sea fowl were in great numbers feeding on it. Those who saw it reported that the skin was rough in one direction and the skin was like satin in the other. At the time of this being examined, the skin and a great many parts of the fish were whining. Mr. Meeson, with a zeal for science which does him infinite credit, Upon hearing the strange accounts which were given of this sea monster, got his brother, Malcolm Lang, and Dr. Grant, an eminent physician, both justices of the peace, 
to take depositions on the spot from which those persons who had seen the fish, that its real appearance might be ascertained. This examination, however, did not play, take place till six weeks after the fish was thrown ashore. These depositions were sent to Sir Joseph Banks, who put them into my hands. I also received a short time later from my friend Mr. Lang in consequence of a request I made for the purpose, that part of the skull which contained the brain, the upper jaw, having been separated from it, a considerable number of the vertebrae of the back united by their natural attachments, a portion of one of the petrol fins, with the cartilages that united to the spine, and a long and short cartilage forming the support of one of the gills. On comparing these different parts with those of the squalus maximus, Maximus, that were found to agree not only in their form, but also in their dimensions. This led to the opinion of the fish being a squalus, a very different one from what was formed by those who saw it in the mutilated state in which it was thrown ashore and who called it a sea snake. Hmm. In the different depositions, several parts are accurately described, such as the valvular intestine, which was taken from the stomach, and the bristles of the mane, which are described as ligamentous fibers. One of them is in my possession, is of the same kind of the fibers forming the margins of the fins of the squalus maximus. So there he said, in his own words, that he got the cranium and some of the vertebrae and the petrol girdle with one of the petrol fins of the Stronson beast mm -hmm. in his possession. And he said, not only did it match the remains of the other two basking sharks that he had, but that it was the same relative size. See, mm. now that's, that's much stronger. But one of the things I think that's overlooked a lot that actually speaks for it being a shark more than anything else is the description of six limbs, which the well, last two I would assume would be claspers. Well, mm. that's what I was going to say. I hadn't got around to explain it yet, but that's exactly what happened. Mm. is that male basking sharks have double penises that are underneath their pelvic fins. Mm -hmm. And they're really weird looking. They look like crab claws. <laughs> and, and if they're separated away, you know, like started to pull away from the body, they would be separate from the pelvic fans, and would look like another set of appendages. Right. Well, there's and, that. There's... Yeah, and, and to even back that up even more, there was a monster washed up in Framwise, Nova Scotia in 1976 that had these appendages like crab claws, and the rest of the body was pretty rotted, but that's what it was. It was a basking shark, and those two claw-looking things with the claspers. It was a male basking shark. Mm. I've got a picture of that, and I'll put it in the slideshow. I imagine, uh, too, that as the carcass decomposes more and more, uh, things like the, the pelvic girdle become maybe somewhat detached, and you get not only the appearance of things that look like different appendages, but perhaps even longer than they're actually supposed to be. Yeah. Well, um... One thing you need to understand is that some people that have looked at 
the photographs of the Zillion Maru carcass maintain that what you're looking at or what you think you're looking at is not necessarily what you're looking at. Mm. And part of that is if you look at the cranium of a basking shark with jaws off of it, you know, the part that looks like a turtle skull, you have normal eye sockets or otic capsules on the sides of the head. But as I said earlier, you've also got holes on top of the skull that if the cranium is turned sideways, that can look like an eye hole too. Right. So there are several diagrams that the pro basking shark people have done that are saying that what you see on the Zio Maru carcass that looks like an eye is in fact this epiphyseal foramen opening in the top of the skull. Yeah, right. I've got one pulled up right now that illustrates that perfectly. And by chance, it also illustrates that, uh, you know, that pelvic girdle that attaches the pelvic fin. Um, if, if it lost more of the mass around that area, it would very much look almost the same length as the front flippers, which obviously is one of the, the points that people tend to say suggests a, a tetrapod of some kind. Yeah, well, you see... Another thing that's interesting is that when you look at the pictures of the Zio Maru carcass, where it's hanging up on the winch, you see that split down the middle of the back. Mm. You naturally assume, well, that must be the spinal cord, right? Right. Well, no, that may possibly be the side of the animal. And what you're seeing, that furrow there, is not the spinal cord, but is the muscles of the trunk musculature have decomposed and they're pulling away from each other in two different sheets. Mm. What they call um, myocomata muscle folds. Mm. In fish and in some primitive tetrapods, there are sheets of connective tissue that separate the different segments of the axial musculature. And these are called myomeres. Collectively, mm. those sheets of connective tissue are called myocomata. Mm. And the more primitive you get in fishes, these myocomata muscle uh, tissue structures have folds in them. And most fish and sharks have these zigzag muscle folds in their myocomata. You can still see myocomata in things like salamanders and in some primitive reptiles. They may mm. have existed in plesiosaurs. I don't know. They probably existed in mosasaurs, I would think. Mm. So, you know, one of the arguments that was used to argue that the Zia Maru carcass was a shark is the argument that those could possibly be evidence of complex zigzag muscle folds in the axial trunk musculature, mm. which would be indicative of a fish. Right, yeah, and especially but, on land. Oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to uh, bring it back to the uh, the idea about the skull and what the eyes or quote unquote eyes might actually be. I'm looking at that comparison photo you sent that suggests that that uh, the this what appears to be a spinal column is actually the side of the animal with the folds. And it's interesting because if you look at it under that lens, those two eye like 
things on the front of the Zeumaru carcass actually line up, it seems, almost perfectly with where that notch in the basking uh, cranium would be. Yeah. And if you look at the picture where you see it from the back, That's you the one. see yeah. what looks like a dorsal fin laying over to the right side. Mm. And that even, you know, if you if you turn it sideways, you can see, well, okay, that's the dorsal fin, and that muscle split is running up the side of the animal instead of on the back. Mm. But now, at the same time, that's extremely ambiguous. Because, as I was talking earlier in the show about plesiosaur vertebrae, mm. the neural spines the transverse processes and rib attachments on the plesiosaur vertebrae were, were loosely connected with um, cartilage or spongy bone. Right. And this is so the plesiosaur could have some spinal flexibility in its neck vertebrae and back vertebrae and tail mm. vertebrae. Um, yeah. So the thing is, they find the fossilized plesiosaur vertebrae normally with a lot of these processes broken off until the only thing left is this centerpiece which looks like a hockey puck and also looks like a basking shark vertebrae in shape mm. so what i'm saying is it's possible that that could be the spinal column of the animal and what looks like it's being split apart could be missing vertebral processes that have broken off the vertebrae and those spaces are where those neural spines and transverse processes used to be which hypothetically would make sense because out of all the things to start decomposing before the bones that would be one of them yeah you know i mean we really we really don't know all the different ways that a plesiosaur could decompose right and it, it's one of those things that really, again, highlights the similarities between basking sharks and plesiosaurs, at least in appearance. Looking at yeah. the the photo with the shark being uh, lifted, it has so many similarities. And again, that side looks very much like it could be what looks like a spinal column on the Zuumaru carcass. Yeah. But then, of course, you have the photo that compares the uh, the spinal column and the bases of the gastral ribs with the Zuumaru yeah. carcass. And that also looks really quite similar. Well, so yeah, it's, see- it's hard to tell. One of the signature anatomical features of plesiosaur skeletons was that across their belly, in between the limb girdles, they had this strip of bones called gastralia, mm-hmm. belly ribs. Now, whether the Zuyamaru carcass was a plesiosaur or a basking shark, the whole bottom part of the animal is gone. Right. So if there were gastral ribs, they're gone by the right. point that it's de- deteriorated and they brought it on the ship. So we don't know if it had those or not. Mm. We're not even sure if there's evidence for a remaining petrol girdle, a, a pelvic girdle on the Zygamaru carcass. Right. There seems to be one in Yano's drawing, but is that just an assumption that he made for the drawing? But there doesn't seem to be any mention of it in the accounts of the observations on the ship. Right. And of course, Yano's drawing has received a bit of uh, updating from Yano and from some other sources as time's gone on. So there, there definitely is a, a tiny bit of question about how accurate the original sketches were. The measurements, though, were made on board the ship and I think recorded right. 
the very same day. So you can have more confidence in the actual measurements he made. Right. But part of the problem with that is the same problem you have with uh, stories of giant snakes. They would bring these giant snake skins back and claim it came from a, a 40 foot snake or a 50 foot snake. And the problem with that is, is that when you dry these skins, they become stretched out. So you can't really rely mm. on the skin of an animal to estimate the size of the original animal. And what I'm saying is, is that the state of decomposition that the Zyamaru carcass was in, it's possible that during the course of trying to measurement, some of, some of the measurements got off because... The body was rotten and parts of it may have stretched where they were trying to measure it. Mm. I don't know, but that is possible. Especially with the decomposing in the ocean. I mean, you know, yeah. salt water turns biological material rather gelatinous and stretchy. So that's yeah. that's completely within the realm so possibility. One, um, one estimate about how, how long they believed the carcass had been in the water before they found it was a month. Mm. That's in one of the forensics papers in the scientific papers. Now, was that one of the initial releases from the Japanese labs, or was that later on? That was in the 1978 papers. Okay, right. That's so that's pretty hot as the, the finding. Okay. Well, guys, I think we've run out of time for part one, so we're going to have to pick this discussion up at the beginning of part two. That's sure thing. That's okay. Yeah. You'll have to forgive me, guys. I'm I'm on the back of 12 hours again, and I am pretty... Pretty finished <laughs> at the moment. Hey, no worries. My brain is frozen. No um, worries. You, you work pretty hard with this stuff, and both of us got some pretty good segments in, I think. So yeah. I think we should be said. Yeah, I mean, uh, and Scott, you laid down some some amazing scientific um, mm. background there as well that really make people think. For me, for my mind, for my 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 very unscientific mind, and not having a basis in in biology. It's the six limbs for me on this, uh, for the Stronzer. But yeah. I think the, the side view that you're talking about for the Ziamara carcass, well, well, I mean, that's a great yeah. way of looking at it, actually. You know, that we're well, looking at perspective. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's a very important Ultimate point sense. that the pro-shark advocates bring up, and you can't just ignore it. Mm. I mean, I if so. you're trying to engage... The skeptics, in a serious argument, you got to at least acknowledge their points. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. an inaccurate point is one that can stand up to scrutiny. And the basking shark theory, for the most part, certainly can. In, in yeah. a way, we're, we're more so attacking the methods used to conclude the basking shark hypothesis than we are the basking shark hypothesis itself. Yeah. Well, you know, looking at it realistically... It's very unlikely that the case will ever be settled. Oh, right. Everyone's yeah. satisfaction. I mean, it's like the Patterson film. It's been ripped yeah. apart, torn apart, examined every possible way, and you're still not sure it could go either way. Mm. So the, the only thing we can do is, is at the end of the day is say, well, this is, there's some compelling evidence here. It's not a conclusive case, but it have some interesting evidence attached to it and mm. just sit it on the shelf and say, well, that's what it is. It is what it is, you know, and look for better evidence. 
Right. But still, most people don't seem to be aware of how compelling the evidence in this case is. And I think we have a duty to explain to people the complexities of this thing and make them aware of just exactly what the situation is. From Couldn't all agree. Absolutely. And like I said, you know, a lot of the people that are a lot of this thing, that it could only be a shark are, are just stopping the argument in 1978 and not bringing any new evidence in relative to the original debate. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to fill in 40 years of things that we've learned about fossil marine reptiles and living marine reptiles and sharks to this whole argument, which I think needs to be done. I agree. Could not agree more. So maybe, Scott, in the next section, in the, the arguments for it being a plesiosaur, what could, what could they be? You know, how can we investigate yeah. that? I'll get to that eventually, but what I want to do first is go over the anatomical arguments that have been used to say that it was a shark. Mm. And then I want to go very deep into the whole biochemical thing, and then we can come back to the plesiosaur stuff after that. Well, even with the biochemical thing, as as far as something kind of concrete goes, that's most of what we have to suggest plesiosaur, or at least not basking shark. Um, that's that's our strongest evidence because the operation was, I guess you could say, botched in a way because certain details weren't, uh, certain measures weren't taken to make sure the results were actually accurate. So it's ambiguous. You know, it depends yeah. on your point of view. I mean, what what parts of that analysis do you find relevant? You know, if mm. if you take out the parts that point toward it being a shark, you may find the results extremely relevant. Right. But if you're questioning that, you're going to look at the stuff that didn't add up. Mm. So that's the parts you're taking away from it. So, you know, it's right. a mixed bag. Absolutely. Yeah. So, By the way, before we leave, the, yep. um, the, the National Library of Scotland is the uh, George IV Bridge Building uh, in the center of Edinburgh. So that's it. Doesn't seem to be in the, the university, unless it's okay. one of the university buildings, perhaps. But it, it maybe they classified it, it as historical um, object, and, and and it's got more and, value as a historical object yeah. than it does as an anatomical specimen. I don't know. Yeah, I would imagine it's yeah. in a big sort of yeah, uh, yeah. In, in a big um, archive somewhere. I well, mean, there's a fact, few of them, by the way. So it could be there's a few buildings that are owned yeah. by the, the National Library. It could be in one of them. The fact that it's looked more as a right. historical object now than a biological specimen may explain why they were reluctant to give any of it away to the biologists mm. to examine. The biologists examine. Could be. Could very well yeah. be. Yeah. 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 I think it's a shame they didn't give them a little piece of it, you know? They wouldn't I, have I, much. I was under the impression the opinion was that it wouldn't survive, you know, it wouldn't survive further experimentation due to its age or or, or whatever the, the excuse was. You know, there was mm. some concern for for keeping it in its its current state. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I didn't know that. We don't know the details, so maybe their arguments are valid. I just don't know. Yeah. Perhaps. Mm. All right. Well, I'm going to pull the okay. plug on this. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Sounds good. good. Have fun. See you guys. Take it easy, yep. my friend.
país. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Mardis. 